Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, it's all about the lies, damn lies and statistics. We pour over the numbers for MAPRA's latest industry statistics and things aren't as bad as they seem. We look into ASIC's supposed about face on its why not litigate mantra and we consider the ups and downs of the insurance broker's code compliance committee statistics from its annual report and wish that they changed their name. Hello everyone. We're sharing seats and flagrantly disregarding the social distancing rules on a packed panel today. Welcome publisher Terry McMullen, managing editor John Deeks, deputy editor Wendy Pugh, and she's back by popular demand, senior journalist Benice Han. Hello all, we've got a lot to cover. So today, a group welcome is all you'll get. And let's start with APRA's most recent industry statistics. Benice, you're our resident statistics expert, almost certainly not by choice. What can we learn from the regulator's latest general insurance numbers? Um, it's actually a pretty good set of numbers in light of all that uh, insurers have had to deal with, like the pandemic and catastrophe losses. So all in the industry made some $1 billion in net profit after tax in the year June to June 30th, which is an increase of about 5.4%. Um, and APRA has said that the results were driven largely by higher investment returns. Uh, that came in at uh, $1.6 billion, which is uh, an increase of about 8.9%. So it's uh, very good uh, results, yeah. Considering the last year, 18 months or two years we've had with the catastrophes, that's, uh, that's impressive. If the industry is returning to profitability, could that spell better times ahead for those hoping for a turn in the hard market, John? Well, yes, it's certainly heading in the right direction. And profitability challenges have, have been used as a reason for soaring premiums in the past. So if things are improving, that should help ease the rate of premium increases. Increasing investment income, stronger underwriting results and falling claims are all very good signs. And as we've heard from Marsh and others, the current trend is towards a more gentle rate of increase. But when and if premiums start to actually drop is another matter entirely. And of course, there may well still be challenges in particular sectors like cyber, where a spate of large losses has resulted in a sharp correction from underwriters. Terry, I may have had too much coffee, but this doesn't mean that everything's fine and there's no issues with availability anymore, is there? I, I think certainly availability is going to be a bit of a problem for a while, but certainly we are starting to see things, some order coming into the process. Well, Benice, you also had the unenviable job of deciphering ASIC's latest corporate plan. Much was made in the mainstream media of the fact that the words, why not litigate, didn't appear. But the corporate regulator isn't about to go soft, is it? Um, it certainly doesn't appear so based on um, our, my conversations with um, industry watchers. And also the new chairman, Joseph Longo, he did say in his message in the corporate plan that ASIC will remain an active litigator against misconduct. And also earlier in a June hearing before a parliamentary joint committee, he was asked if there would be a change in enforcement approach. And his advice was to continue to expand active and enforcement approach. And also to quote ASIC Commissioner Sean Hughes in a 2019 speech, why not litigate does not mean it's a litigate first or litigate everything strategy. So far from it, um, doesn't certainly doesn't appear that ASIC is about to go soft. After all that has happened following the um, Hain Royal Commissions. Terry, what's your sense of ASIC under Joe Longo as compared to the James Shipton, Daniel Crennan era? Well, Longo is really interesting. I take 
into account what uh, Bernice was saying. Uh, I, I think we might be moving from this thing of why not litigate to, to maybe a, a new period of speaking softly but carrying a very large stick, which may help. Longo's uh, an experienced senior regulator with a strong background in business at the top level, and he's unusual in that he, he gained his regulatory experience from ASIC, working as the National Director Enforcement, but then he became General Counsel for Deutsche Bank in London and Hong Kong, where he, he worked for 17 years, working at the very highest level of the banks uh, across practically everything. Uh, he ran legal teams. He dealt with all the all the tough stuff, regulatory issues, governance, infrastructure, and even HR and employee relations, I gather. So he's a, he's a different kettle of fish in that he's, he's got a lot of experience on both sides of, of the ledger. Now he's back at ASIC. We'll have to wait a while to see whether he does favour litigation over a softer line, but, you know, like Britney said, I don't think it's going to change that much. So you're saying he's less of an industry basher and more of an industry enabler? Just think that he doesn't need to walk in saying exactly what he's going to do. I think he's he's the kind of guy who'll take action. And I think rather than talking about it, he'll do it. Well, Wendy, you covered AUB's results last week. How did they compare with the brilliant performance of the other major broken groups recently? The brokers have all been assisted by increases in commercial line premiums, um, and that was the case for AUB also. So their underlying profit um, rose around 26% to uh, 67.1 million, um, and that was um, driven by their uh, existing businesses primarily and um, particularly Australian broking. CEO uh, Mike Emmett uh, makes the point that, you know, we, we don't know whether the uh, Delta outbreak will have a much different impact on the economy than we've seen with the previous lockdowns, but the company's proved pretty resilient over the past 12 months and they expect that will continue to be the case. In terms of acquisitions, AUB has been a little quieter than some of its competitors recently. Terry, they're still a massive player in the Australian market, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yes, very much so. Time was when AUB and Steadfast were about the same size, but that was a long time ago. Uh, or oh, not all that long ago, I suppose. Their strategies uh, are to, to obviously buy into brokerages, but they have entirely different ways of doing it. AUB has more than 3,000 members. That's people who work under the AUB banner and, and around Four billion in GWP, so it's about a billion or so behind Steadfast. But it began acquiring stakes in some truly great brokerages many years before Steadfast floated and was in a position to buy brokerages. So I've always looked on AUB as a great company. It's managed very aggressively, and it's been a stock market darling for a long time. Pretty good combination, Benice. The Insurance Brokers Code Compliance Committee annual report was out last week. What did that have to say? Yes, so um, this time around, the committee just gave a summary of the figures as to why they crunched through the numbers and they expect to release the findings at a later date. So what they have focused on is actually um, the concerning drop in percentage of sus subscribers self-reporting breaches. So that fell to 44% in the 2020-21 year from 51% in the uh, prior corresponding period. So the committee has said that it will continue to push for improved practices and conduct from intermediaries. And committee chairman Michael Gill says, while the law has a critical role to play, that 
in itself is not a guarantee of appropriate service. So he reminded brokers that culture is just as important. That drop in self-reporting, is that a case of the industry getting better or is it? Uh, do we think it's more a case of people are, uh, are covering things up, up more? I think he's a bit worried that they may be taking their foot off the accelerator and maybe not focusing as much as they should on reporting breaches. So I think his point was to remind them that um, they, they need to be co- remain um, committed to uh, improving culture and uh, risk uh, compliances. Yeah, I can add a little bit to that as well. So in, in conversations I've had in the past, the point is that if too many brokers and particularly large brokerages are not reporting any breaches at all, then that just doesn't seem right to the Code Compliance Committee and they get worried that that their um, measures just for identifying breaches just aren't up to scratch, if that makes sense. It's a bit of a strange one because in theory, the fewer breaches, the better, but the, the suspicion is that there, there are breaches out there. They're just not being reported. Well, John, we're still waiting for an updated code from NIBA, aren't we? Yes, that's right. I'm afraid we are. Brokers are still working from a 2014 version of the code, and it's supposed to be updated every three years. I was looking back at an old story we'd run in 2018 in which NIBA was saying, we hope to have this code up and running next year, so 2019. And here we are in... 2021 and we're still working from the 2014 code about a year ago the code compliance committee lost patience and demanded that NIBA get its act together since then they've published a draft document but the code committee and consumer groups were far from impressed with that and while NIBA's independent reviewer has taken the feedback on board we're yet to see another version NIBA had previously said the new code would be launched at this year's convention, but as we've reported recently, that event has now been postponed until February next year. We have asked NIBA about the latest timeframes, but they haven't committed to anything at the moment, at least not not to us. Terry, why do you think it's taken so long for NIBA to get this sorted? I think NIBA's been struggling for quite a while to get a whole lot of very important stuff done with a very small number of people actually doing it. Look, it, it has a very diverse membership and, and that makes it harder for NIBA to reach easy consensus on practically any issue. A code of practice that's up to date and effective, yeah, it, that's obviously important, but so are a lot of other things. The brokers have a code, yes, yeah, it's got cobwebs on it. But from my experience of the difficulties inherent in finding a way through the mindset of giant international players, big local brokers and AR groups, and even the AR down the road, that's not something that you can sort out easily. So I guess it's been gathering dust on the the top shelf and... I think I can understand why. Uh, do you also think the fervour around the Hain Royal Commission a couple of years ago sort of directed uh, focus elsewhere? Look, I think it's it's that sort of thing. It, it's keeping up with the game, and the game over the last five or six years has been changing so quickly. And and as I say, Niebuhr's not like ICA, which has has the deep pockets of the insurers to dip into if necessary. And it has a membership that that's, they're all heading in in many ways in different directions. It's a highly competitive part of the of the industry, and they they simply haven't devoted the resources because 
the resources aren't, you know, easily there. And certainly getting consensus on anything, I can tell you, is very, very difficult. Well, finally, as we've reported many times, insurers and brokers are seasoned campaigners against taxes on insurance. But it's actually looking good for one Tasmanian tax, Wendy. Tasmania currently puts a uh, levy on business insurance premiums to fund the uh, fire service, and uh, that's being reconsidered as part of a wider review of the fire services legislation. So this goes back a fair way, actually, as an issues paper was put out in 2018, but it was only last year that a final report went to the government. Then there was a state election in uh, Tasmania in May, um, and now things are finally moving again with uh, a, a consultation on the review recommendations. And um, one of those is that the insurance levy should be replaced with a property-based alternative or another funding source. So um, now uh, submissions are are due by uh, November 15, but it seems like there's a lot of support building to get rid of that um, insurance levy. Well, if this goes well, that would leave New South Wales as the only state with a fire services levy on insurance, wouldn't it, John? It would. As we all remember, the New South Wales emergency services levy was due to be scrapped and replaced by a property-based charge before a dramatic government U-turn in 2017 that left insurers and brokers furious. Even since then, more reports have come out recommending revisiting reform, but the Berejiklian government has not responded. If Tasmania does go ahead and axe its levy, that surely ramps up pressure once again on New South Wales to do the same. Terry, why on earth is it so hard to get rid of these taxes when so many reports have found them to be unfair and inefficient? Oh, that's easy. All I need to do is quote Paul Keating, never get between a state premier and a bucket of money. Dropping so-called invisible taxes like these levies takes political courage. And that's not a thing that you know, as easy for premiers to come by. Don't ever think Victoria wanted to drop its fire services levy after the 2009 bushfires, but the resulting Royal Commission gave them no option. Gladys Berejiklian brought in on a scheme, as John said, to remove the New South Wales emergency services levy, but that magnificent political nose of hers told her it wasn't going to be popular with business, so she scrapped it. But the Tasmanian tax is relatively low, but it will help the insurers with their case in New South Wales if it's the last one standing. Well, we can all hope. That brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Benice Han. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.